0: you have come and conquered the grave that death has been defeated that darkness has been destroyed and the light of your truth now is living in each one of us is living in your son and one day you will return there will be no need of the sun no need of any light because you will be the light that we will see clearly. until that day comes help us to be faithful in your name we pray amen before I go, though, I just want to say thank you guys for helping us. And guess what? You have to wait all the way until next Easter to blow one of these out. So, Thank you guys very much. You can go. Yeah, you kids are dismissed to Children's Church. And as they're going, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And as they're turning there, if you look at the notes in your bulletin, we are going to be going through a lot of different passages of the Bible and hitting them in a rather succinct movement. So I'd encourage you to keep your fingers nimble that they hopefully they won't cramp up as the time goes on. And uh, as I always like to say, we will not be doing an exhaustive study. You may be exhausted by the time we're done, but there's so much more we could talk about. That being said, let's pray and uh, ask God blessing upon our time. Dearly Father, you are great. We are small. You are holy and we are sinful. You are just and we are unjust. Help us today to see that great chasm that we could never have crossed, but you stooped down and became like us. Humbled yourself to the cross and died a death we could not die. Lived a life that we could never have lived. And then rose again to proclaim that you have won. Holy Father, may we live like that. May we believe it. In your name we pray, amen. Today is a dividing day. Really, it divides everyone that's sitting in this room. Do you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, or do you not? There's only two choices here. Either he did rise from the dead, or he did not. When you get to the bottom of it, when you strip it all away, Either He rose from the dead or He did not. No one somewhat rises from the dead. There is no middle ground. Either you're dead or you're alive. Either Jesus rose from the dead and now we respond to it, or He did not rise from the dead. And the Bible will say we are the most foolish ones around. There is no middle ground. But I'm going to make an assumption. I'm assuming that the reason you gather today is because you believe what was recorded to us in God's Word as the truth that we are celebrating that the tomb is empty and that He is alive and we do serve a risen Savior. The title of the message today is about as simple as you can get, He is risen. And we're going to look at the resurrection account in the Gospel of Luke here. And as we go through this, I'm going to encourage us to pause and to think at some of the phrases that we so quickly read over because we're living in the day and age we live in that we don't pause and reflect on these things. So. He told you, while he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looked in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. We're first going to see here, in point number one of the sermon, in verse five, we're going to see the need for the resurrection. And when we look at the need for the resurrection, there's going to be a phrase in this that many of us read and we just move on, but I, I pray, because all of you have been, as we started which we'll be working on next week too. We're in Genesis. I'm praying that you're thinking from a Genesis perspective moving forward because there's a phrase that should cause you to pause that we're going to read here. In verse 5, these angels that are there say to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now this phrase, the living among the dead, should cause us to pause. Because remember, when God created the world... Death was not part of his creation. The part of the creation he created was that Adam and Eve would live in perfect harmony with him, would never die, have access to the tree of life, that they would live in this beautiful garden, that they would reproduce and literally fill the earth with people that would be living for eternity with God in beautiful harmony with him. And so what I want to do here is walk through and say, how in the world did we get dead? Because many times we, we hear this, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Because immediately we should say, why is death even around? Because it was not in the garden, how did it get here? And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the Bible, walk through these biblical texts to get us to this point where these are the things that should be ringing in our ears, that this statement that the angels made, why are you looking for the living among the dead, should cause us to say, why is there even death at all? And what Jesus did about it. So let's go back to Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Because my prayer is for us to understand that this concept is not something that all of a sudden Jesus came up with it or the apostles. This has been in the Bible from start to finish. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." Establish, let's just stop there for a second. There's every tree you can eat, multiples of trees, tree upon tree upon tree. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What we see here is the day you eat of this tree, death comes into the world. And how will death come into the world, is my man rebelling against the Creator? The Creator said you can have all of these wonderful things all around you, but here's one thing not to do. Don't eat of this tree, and if you do, death will come in. And we know in chapter 3 that Adam and Eve willfully, they knew what they were doing. Eve was tempted, Adam is standing right by her, and he enters into this willful disobedience, taking the fruit that they were told not to eat, and eating it, rebelling against God their Creator. And then God, in Genesis 3.19, tells them the consequences of this. Verse 19, by the, in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. This work that I gave you at the garden that was supposed to be a joy now is going to become a toil and work that was supposed to be fulfilling is now going to be difficult and hard and it's going to bring bread to you and you're going to struggle and do this until you return to the ground from which you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return. So what we see here is Adam and all of his descendants are now born with a sinful heart and rebellion against God. I want you to turn to the Psalms with me. Turn to Psalm chapter 14. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, now the descendants of Adam, which we all are, sadly these truths are said about us. Let's start off in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are all corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. By the way, let's help, let's help ourselves out here. There is none that, do go, that does good, so that none means no one. Let's help it out. All right. So if you go, well, I'm a pretty good person, the Bible tells you and me that we are, we are not. And just in case, if you're wondering, verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And here's what he finds in verse 3. They all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There was no one who does good. No, not one. And you even ask yourself and say, this is what the Bible tells us, that we are sinners in a desperate need of a Savior. Many times, sadly, I, 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 it's just a struggle because sometimes... Christians, I would say, because they say this wrongly, Christian people can be seen by the world as like holy rollers. And I would say, if Christians really understood what the Bible says, they would say, no, we are not holy rollers. We are saved by grace. We are sinners that have been saved by grace. And we know where in our heart dwells no good thing. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, so would we be. And this is where when we understand what Jeremiah says about the heart, how it's deceitful and desperately wicked, who would know it? And what, when, we, when we think through these things as believers, we understand that man left alone to himself only brings about catastrophe and death. There's a great, great, great novel that talks about this, The Lord of the Flies. I just read it and you'll, just, you'll understand it all at the end. That You go, you take this group of people, put them on an island, what happens? Not good. Disaster upon disaster. And so that is why the Bible talks about you need a new heart. You need to be born again because your own sinful nature is only going to lead you into more and more sin. And this is what we see from Adam, our desires. Desires that are in our heart need to be continually brought before the Lord and saying, Lord, check, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so when when we're tempted to look down our noses as if we're better than one another, I would say pick up your Bible and read, and the Bible will give you a good dose of who you really are, that by the grace of God So go you. Each one of us is capable of rebelling against God every single day, and I would even argue when we do it wholeheartedly. Uh, That's why, sadly, many people really can't stand the Bible because the Bible confronts them of saying what they're doing is wrong. And let's be honest, none of us like being confronted, all right? I don't know about you, but when my wife tells me something that I know is right, and I know that I, like, you're right, Allison. I don't really like to say you're right. I like to go, well, that's a good idea. And I have to wait a little bit, so then I'll do it. So that way I'm not proving to the fact that she was right because my own flesh is what? Tim is right all the time. It's only a matter of time until she comes over to my side. But what I see in my heart, pride upon pride upon pride. And so then when it even comes to salvation, what do we think? I can save myself. I can be good enough to save myself. I don't need this or that. I can do it on my own. But what we need to do is turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Remember, we're asking ourselves, how did this death come about? Why are they even saying, why do you see the living among the dead? Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to help us here quite a bit. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says there, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's the one man? Adam. All right, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's about as clear as you can get that death came into the world through one man and it has spread to all of you that all of you have sinned. And this is one thing we all have in common, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And this happened, and so we have to ask ourselves, how does... Anything happen that stops this problem. Because Romans 3.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. What we earn every single day when we sin and rebel against our Creator is death upon death upon death. It is not just we earned it once, but it's every time we rebel against God. Every time we say, I want to do my own desires, I want to go my own way, I am not going to submit to your rule and to your reign, and so what do we try to do? We either suppress the truth and ignore it and run and say, there is no God and we're just going to ignore that, or we blatantly rebel against Him. And so when we think through this for a moment, we need to move down to verse 18. Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. This one trespass was Adam that rebelled against the Creator and it led to condemnation for all of us. And so what we see in Adam, who was our representative, because we are descendants of Adam. As we see in Adam, we see Adam was in the garden in a beautiful paradise, a beyond paradise. And in paradise, he rebelled against his creator. The creator said, you can do all of these things, just don't do this one thing. And Adam said, I want to be my own God. I want to be my own maker. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing and rebelled against God. And in that rebellion, all of us then fall in. And then time and space happened where the true second Adam came. The Adam that was the true man, the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ himself. And not only did he live the perfect life, when he was tempted, but when Adam was tempted in the garden, he failed. But what do we even see about Jesus' temptation? Forty days in the wilderness, no food at his weakest upon weakest. And what does he do in the wilderness? says, no, it is written. Adam could have said to the serpent, no, Jesus has said. But what did he do? He went and fell. That is why we needed a second Adam. Continue reading. Verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience will many be made righteous. And what do we see? Jesus is that man. He came and lived a perfect life, and He died the death we could not die. I'm not, we don't need to turn there right now, but literally Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, his enemies, say, which one of you convicts me of sin? And they do not even respond to that because they don't have anything to convict him against. The only thing they ever accused him of was claiming that he was God. Imagine that, it, because he was God. And so with this ringing in our ears, I want to turn to Acts chapter 2. Because the question that the angel asks is, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? can only be answered after a long journey through the Bible of Acts chapter 22, verse 24. Here we have Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. If you don't have this verse underlined in your Bible, I'd encourage you to. Here's what Peter said. God raised Him up, meaning Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for death to be held by it. The reason why Jesus could not be held down as from death was because He lived the perfect life. Sin had no claim over Him. So when He died, death could not hold Him. It couldn't even put its if you want to call it talons in Him, because He lived the perfect life, that's why He was raised from the dead, and because He lived the perfect life, we then can live in newness of life with Him. In Acts 2.24 there again, it says, God raised Him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be healed. I encourage you to remi- remember that Because when our loved ones pass away, when our loved ones go to the grave, death holds them until Christ returns and says, I've conquered it all. So the question that the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead, is because he's not there. Why? Because he never is going to last there, because death could not hold him. Next we're going to see, back to Luke 24. Luke 24, and in Luke 24, verse 6, after they ask him, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And then there's a phrase afterwards that I I don't think is said with any type of come on, but remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. If you read through the Gospels, you will see over and over and over and over again Jesus saying, I must go to Jerusalem where they will take the Son of Man, they will accuse Him, they will beat Him, they will crucify Him, and He will rise again on the third day. Jesus says this over and over and over again through the Gospels. But it is clear that the disciples do not get it until later. And this is where they're starting to get it because you see this And it says in verse 8, and they remembered his words. Oh, that's right, and what he said actually came true. Now, before we do that, though, sometimes there's critics that will say, well, Jesus was saying this because he knew he was about ready to do it, so these are self-fulfilling prophecies. And I would argue, no, the Bible has been speaking about this from the very beginning. And so we're going to go through an Old Testament journey talking about the idea of a resurrected Savior is not something that is only found in the New Testament. Um, You will see this in 1 Corinthians 15.4. You don't need to turn there, but just uh, Paul is saying he rose again according to the Scriptures. All right. Well, if Jesus is the only one that talks about the resurrection, well, they're not talking about those Scriptures. They are talking about the Old Testament when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. And so you have to say, well, where is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection talked about in the Old Testament? I gave you some passages there. We're not going to go through each one of them. These are... Three pretty, um, I would call them obvious ones, but I want to turn to Isaiah 53, and let's just look at Isaiah 53, here, verses uh, 10 and 11. Isaiah 53. Speaking of the Messiah here, this is the passage that Pastor Caleb spoke out, of in um, the Good Friday service, and we read the whole thing, but I want to look at verse ten. Speaking of Jesus here in verse ten, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him; he was put him to grief. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him when his soul makes an offering for sin. The only offering that could be made for sin was a death offering. It was like the killing of the lamb, but the blood being spilled and it was the will of the Lord to crush him to offer his life as that sacrifice for sin. This is for the Israelite people, they would have understood that a sin offering is a dead offering. The offering has been killed and notice what it says afterwards. He shall see his offspring. Wait a minute. The offering that has been killed will do what? See its offspring, and not only that, he shall prolong his days. Meaning this offering is living after the offering has happened. This here in the Old Testament is saying this offering is going to be killed, going to be crushed, yet he will see things in the future, his offspring, and he will prolong his days. What we see here is Isaiah proclaiming that this offspring will not ultimately die, will not ultimately be crushed. He will see His offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The texts go on and on. You can look at the ones in Psalm. You can look at the one in in, uh, Daniel there as well. But one of the things we need to make sure we understand is that temple sacrifices were needed yearly because the sacrifice was not the ultimate sacrifice to forgive sins. Every year at the Passover, the families would bring a lamb to offer for their for their sin for that year, because the Lord was teaching them that sin is something that must be dealt with. It cannot be passed over. And what we see is these offerings would happen year after year, and the families would bring these year after year, and you're supposed to start feeling like, when will this ever end? When will this ever stop? Will you continue to keep bringing the Passover spotless lamb? But when Jesus came, all things changed. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. We'll start in verse 11 to give you a little bit of context. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which could never take away sins. It covered it, but it never could take it away. Then you have these great lines in the Bible that Totally just turn it on its head. But when Christ, that could be its own sermon, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He was not like the other priests who were standing. What does He do? He sits down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until His enemies will be made His footstool. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is what we see, this perfect sacrifice. This sacrifice that did away with sin, the sacrifice that was made, and no more does it need to be made. Turn again back now to Romans chapter 5. I know we are all over the place, but just hang with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. The problem what I'm trying to explain to you is this is not just something that is found in one passage of Scripture. This is all throughout the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. And we're going to read this again. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many were made righteous. That is the gospel alone. That your sin continually is to separate you from God, but there must come a time where you cast yourself on God saying, I repent of my sin, I cannot save myself. I could never make myself good enough to stand before God. So each one of us is confronted with this issue, each one of us in, in our lives is going to either say, either Jesus did rise from the dead, and now what? Or He did not, and a group of people running around like you believers are the craziest people ever that think that dead people live. Well, that response was seen in our passage here. We're going to go to a couple other passages, but let's go back to Luke 24. Luke 24 here, verses 10 and 11 And we see the Marys that were there. And what they did after they were told this, they immediately went and told the disciples, Hey guys, He is risen. But, in verse 11, these words seem like idle tales. Uh, There's other translations that even say they seem like fairy tales. You see that Jesus is raised from the dead. He's not in the tomb. They run back and tell the disciples. The disciples are like, I don't know about this. All right, Peter, though, Good old Peter, as he's sitting there, he says, I've got to check this out for myself. And what he does, he he noticed he even runs to the tomb and stooping down, he looked in and he saw and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we're going to see some several responses to the resurrection. And I'm even going to say these responses are what we see today. First, you're going to see the response of sharing it with others. The tomb is empty. We go and tell the world. Because what we see all around us is the world trying to fill themselves, trying to satisfy themselves with so many things that do not satisfy. So many things that are satisfactory for a moment. The Bible calls these the fleeting pleasures of sin, where I would really truly do believe if the world would allow themselves to pause for a second and to think, they would realize what they're pursuing after is just fleeting, fleeting pleasure. It's like trying to grasp the wind. But what we see here is when these women run and they tell the disciples, we see some looked and said, no way. That's too good to be true. That's a fairy tale. Peter, he comes and runs and he believes. And so we're confronted with this. What is our response to it? There's two more passages of Scripture I want to look at at our response. One is in 1 Corinthians 15. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15. How do we live in light of today? Because if we're not careful, Easter becomes a day where we all put on really nice colored outfits. We all get our white Easter lilies and everybody goes, that's great. We eat way too many peanut butter eggs and jelly beans, and then we deal with all of that, and it just comes and goes. But for the believer, today is no ordinary day. Paul here in chapter 15 is talking about, if Jesus had not raised from the dead, then we are to be most pitied. And then he gets to verse 20 here, and he says, but in fact, I love that phrase. He doesn't say, I think or I hope. But in fact, this is a fact, God has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, we pounded that point one, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. If Christ is raised from the dead, He is the first. Of all who, to put their faith and trust in Him after, will have that same eternal life. So when you this spring are going out and you're looking at your trees wondering, did this one make it through the winter or not, and you see one bud, what does that bud remind you? That there's other buds that are yet to come. There's other branches and flowers that are yet to come. You start to see that. And what we see in Christ rising from the dead is the beginning of a multitude of people, The revelation tells us that there will be myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands, all because of Christ's perfect life and sacrifice. And yet we stand here and we say, come on, but listen, I mean, that sounds really, really great, but you didn't see it. I mean, this couple thousands of years from now, how do you know that the tomb is empty? Because I've seen a lot of empty tombs. You go over to Israel, there's a lot of tombs, there's bodies aren't there. You go to Egypt, guess what? The bodies aren't there in a lot of tombs. Well, some of them have been stolen, all right, but the bodies aren't there. So, what does an empty tomb prove? There's an empty tomb, all right? But here's what Jesus says to us believers here Turn to John 20. Remember when Thomas was really wrestling, did Jesus actually raise from the dead? Remember Jesus stands before him and he says, put your hands and my fingers and my side and all these other things. And here's what Thomas, when he says, and he sees this and he says, do you disbelieve or believe? And Thomas says, oh Lord my God, yes, you are Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. And I really do believe he is not speaking necessarily to the 12 there, but to us to this day here and he says, have you believed me because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen but yet believe. He's speaking to us. Those who have not seen yet what? Believe. That is called. It is not faith into that we're standing, hoping that we're going to jump into the void, hoping that someone catches us. What faith is, is what we believe that has been reported to us. We believe, as Paul says, this is fact. We do not have a blind faith. We have a faith in what God has done in the past, and what he's able to do in the past, he is faithful to do now. And we praise him for what he has done, what he's doing now, and what he will continue to do. So we're, every year when Easter rolls around, we're confronted. I mean, we all sang, I mean, the choir got up here and sang a phenomenal song. I don't know why you guys don't do more of those. It's just a little side note, like, hey, it was great. I mean, you put a lot of work into it. Thank you very much, and I love it. And they boldly proclaimed that. And then we as a church stood up here and boldly proclaimed that He is risen hallelujah, all these things like that that we all sit here and say, and it's really easy to say in a nice, warm place where there's not a whole lot of persecution. None of you had to go. I wonder if my house is going to get burned down while we're here. Am I really going to have to stand for this or not? It's easier for us to say, but the real rubber meets the road when we go, do we live like it? Do we when we wake up each day, do we realize that we, by God's grace, get to serve a risen Savior? There is no pilgrimage that we need to make to go find the the guy that started Christianity because guess what? He is alive. We don't have to sit here each day and say, well, I hope that the fates will look favorably upon me. No. No. We know that God is on His throne working all things together for our good and what He says He is able to do far more abundantly than we could even imagine. But, believer, we cut ourselves short when we are not gracious with others. We cut ourselves short when we look down a proverbial nose and say, I can't believe you don't believe it. And we go, because such a time you were there as well. Do we even share the gospel truth with the lost and dying world around us in a way that says we are not any better than you. All we are are sinners saved by grace, and we're more than willing to admit my own sin that caused Christ to go to the cross to redeem a sinner saved like me. The song that has been ringing through my head is only a sinner saved by grace. This is my story. To God be the glory, I'm only a sinner saved by Grace. And not only that, the beauty of all of that is that one day, when all of this world and its confusion and everything is all gone away, we, by God's grace, will stand before our Savior, seeing the wounds in His hands, seeing His wounded side, and proclaim, All glory be to God. When Rob at our early morning service, which is when we should have church all the time. I mean, what else are we doing at 6:15, right? But when he was reading in Revelation there, when the cry went out, "To who is worthy to open the scroll?" And they search all over the place. In my mind I see like the mighty men coming up trying to open the scroll and they fail. I see like, you know, someone there with a jackhammer trying or whatever trying to break it and no one is found worthy. No one can even get, even meet the criteria to try to open the scroll. But what do we see? The lion from the tribe of Judah coming as a lamb that was slain, standing there in great power, doing what none of us could do. And that is why I truly do believe, as a believer, there is no fear. Yes, there is a wrestle that we wrestle with, because death is scary, let's be honest with us. When you're faced with your own mortality, I mean, there's a swallow that is hard that happens. But for a believer, there's an anchor that holds. That we know who conquered death. And that is not something, yes, it may cause you to worry, but it is not a fear that destroys us. It is a promise that death is the key that unlocks the door to endless praise within. Are we living that way? Or are we living that right now is all that matters? Because we serve a risen Savior who tells us there is more yet to come. This is just but a foretaste of the glory that is yet to be revealed. And it's because of today. So when we ask ourselves, what did we learn Today? Christ the Lord is risen, and our response is live like it. So I'll give you one more opportunity here. He is risen. He is risen Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just proclaimed it. Now may we live it. May these phrases that we looked at today remind us that. We do not need to look among the dead for our Savior because He is among the living. Because that is what He has said. So dearly Father, may we boldly go forth praising and honor and glorifying You. Help us now. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.